are listening to the Down the Wormhole podcast, exploring the strange and fascinating relationship between science and religion. This week, we are exploring how that relationship gets worked out in real life with one of the current Sinai and Synapses fellows. Sinai and Synapses is a two-year fellowship committed to elevating the discourse surrounding religion and science and where the five of us first met. So, without further ado... Our guest today is the former acting director of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science at the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago, as well as a senior fellow at the McLean Center uh, for Clinical Medical Ethics at the University of Chicago. Clinically, she works as a chaplain and ethicist at the University of Chicago Medical Center and focuses on the existential and spiritual issues facing organ transplant patients. Her early research was on the uses of the Hebrew Bible in environmental ethics, but more recently, she has turned towards the intersection between environmental ethics and bioethics to study the green burial movement and organ donation. So welcome to the podcast, to the Reverend Dr. Crystal Clayville. Hello. Hi. (laughs) (laughs) That was a lot of words all in one place. In a row, all of them about you. How fun is that to hear somebody else talk about you? (laughs) It's pretty good. It's pretty good. So I have, um, I want to start us out today with a very important, heavy hitting question because you've been in Chicago for some time now and I need to know which is your favorite pizza place in the city. Oh, wow. My very favorite. Your very favorite pizza place. Oh, that's a... That's a hard question. All of your credibility is of on the pizza. line. <laughs> hmm. Well, should you start with your favorite pizza and then go to your favorite pizza place? Because hmm. you just said there's different kinds. So Right. So there's the Chicago style pizza. Um, and then there's normal pizza. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in the city of Chicago, who makes the best? In the city pie? of Chicago. In the city of Chicago. Um. Stop dodging my questions. We're this is a heavy hitting you know, podcast. <laughs> it is. It is. Uh, I mean, I think you know, marriages have come to an end over this kind of question. Probably. Um, yeah. Mine has come close. Yeah, I think I'm probably just not that interesting, and I'm going to say something like Giordano's because I can walk there, and they have consistently good Chicago style pizza. Nothing wrong with Giordano's. But when I go to some place like Giordano's, I usually get. Uh, vegetarian pizza. I'm not vegetarian, but I share with someone who doesn't mix meat and milk. Mm. So I can't speak to a lot of the the arrays of pizza. When I get pizza on my own, I like Hawaiian style pizza. Mm. Um, How controversial of you. I know. (laughs) (laughs) And I, I definitely thought that pineapple didn't belong on pizza for a long time. And now I can't get enough of it. I'm with you there. So what was it that made you switch? Because I'll be honest, while I do do enjoy it on the pizza, the pineapple that I I don't know if I'm there. I mean, I don't know if I've reached that level of that you have reached. (laughs) I think, I think it made me feel like I was eating fresh food when I was actually eating highly processed food. Okay. Um, and I think the transformation took place while I was in a working at a in a place that was very near a Blaze Pizza, which has a thin crust, right? Thin, fired, um, and then you can. It's easy to get two toppings on your pizza, but then mm-hmm. they have so many. It's like, well, what kind of? I you know, got to counter the decision fatigue of of lunch, and I thought, well. I'm going to try this uh, Canadian bacon and pineapple. Uh, and then I just kept eating it. Well, okay. I salute your ecumenical decision. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that has come in handy as a personality trait in the work that you have done. It, it seems like um, just in reading over everything about you, you have crossed many boundaries and made connections between things that um, some folks don't. You have one of the more esoteric um, uh, collections of of research and thought and writings, and I, I, I'm excited to talk to you so, about some of that. So you mentioned in your in your blog, you said, "quote Oh yeah, deep cut." 
Um, quote, I hadn't planned on being so much of a doer in this situation, meaning COVID tide. I planned on being a professor of religion. So I got a PhD in religious ethics and did fellowship training in clinical medical ethics. I thought I'd be the kind of person who would sit behind a desk and have a lot to say about what chaplains are doing in this crisis. But now I'm a chaplain. And the chaplains have been deemed essential personnel at the hospital. I am a doer and an essential one at that. So what has it been like the past six months on the front lines of this thing? Well, first of all, um, it's, I didn't realize you'd find my blog and give my words back to me, but that's great. I mean, it's a new Twitter bio. <laughs> I, didn't, so. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't. It is. I didn't hide it. I didn't know. <laughs> In fact, I wanted more people to read it, but I... Uh, I haven't updated it in a while because things have been overwhelming. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, what I was trying to sort of capture in that moment was I am a chaplain. Um, I, I enjoy that work. It wasn't plan A, but along the way, getting a PhD, it definitely became an option, uh, something that I enjoyed and something that I felt like I could do and find meaning in and be helpful. Um, but I was sort of newly embracing that when, uh, the pandemic hit, um, and a lot of my friends who were in academia proper were getting time off to finish their manuscripts. Hmm. And so at some point, like time off, right? Time off that, um, you have to stay home and you can't do anything, um, and so there was a moment when it definitely felt like adding insult to injury that not only was I not going to get any time off, I was going to have to go in and be very proximate to um, people who were carrying this virus, that that's what it meant to be an essential worker. Um, and for me, coming from probably a lower class to middle class background, depending on what time in my own life we look at. Um, there's a lot of class anxiety potentially <laughs> that gets tracked on to whether or not, you know, you get to be an academic um, or you end up being an essential worker or someone who would get labeled an essential worker. Um, so I think that's part of what I meant about I didn't intend to be a doer. I had been trying to outrun a lot of... Um, a lot of doing jobs and trying to find a place where I could sit and think. I thought it would be someone who would just get to sit and think and maybe have conversations with people. Um, I've come to find what I'm doing more fulfilling than what I than than that track would have been for me, and that's been really good. Um, I you know I got to be a, prof a professor for a few years, um, and I enjoyed the teaching. And I enjoyed the research, but I'm, I'm finding the messiness of human connection and how it reframes uh, a lot of the problems I'd been thinking about already. Um, it makes them just more complex and more interesting to me. Um, so I've, I've embraced where I am. It took some time. But part of your question was about COVID and how this has changed. Do you have a specific follow-up question or do you want me to keep expanding? No, keep going. Um, so I'm trying to write a memoir about this that's going to be organized around different kinds of topics. Like what does it mean to be essential? Um, my short definition of that is that it means you have to show up in bodily form <laughs> at work. <laughs> um, that that's one of the basic aspects. Uh, but what does it mean for a chaplain to be essential in the hospital? That's something that I think has a lot of potential history to it, thinking about how medicine and religion have interacted over time. It's also kind of foreboding, right? So what is it that's going on in the upper administration and what do they know about what's coming when they say the chaplains are essential? Mm. We're going to need you to come in. Oh, yeah. Some other people aren't, but you are. Um, and that was, so I had a kind of sinking feeling when we were told that, like, this means they anticipate a lot of death. They anticipate a lot of burnout. 
They anticipate a lot of ethical situations that need nuance and communication, um, and they want us to be there for that. Um, and that's kind of what happened. I mean, chaplains are more than sort of end of life <laughs> employees. We do a lot more than that. But I think the perception often, even within the systems where we work, is that um, we do a lot more end of life care than anything else. That's why I never, I never wore a collar when I uh, was doing hospital work. Because you walk into a hospital with a collar and people see the Grim Reaper. They do. They do. Absolutely. Do you find yourself doing um, a lot of work with the staff of the hospital, trying to get help them cope through this time? <sighs> not enough. Hmm. I feel like we're not doing enough. Um, we did start a, a staff hotline for people to call in, um, and that has been somewhat helpful. We are each assigned to units and we've been checking in on staff on our units and I've developed sort of interpersonal relationships with any number of staff and try to um, try to engage them but we haven't put together significant programs that could be developed to really um, help staff, more like a list of resources <laughs> that can be engaged, right? Like, yeah, no one blames you for not inventing a brand new system in the middle of this. <laughs> right. But, I mean, staff definitely needed a lot of care early on, and I think the kinds of care that are needed now just, um, they're a little bit different. Like, I don't know that people were thinking about long-term and what to set up for long-term care. Hmm. Um in, say, March and April, the triage version of trying to keep people feeling safe and moving forward, um, I think, has still dominated. So y you have also done some uh, some work thinking and working through the, the spiritual and because of existential issues of uh, organ transplant. I'm, I'm sure that for most of our listeners, unless they or someone that they love has been directly involved with some form of organ transplant, that that's not something they've ever sat to think about. What are some of the implications of, of that? Yeah. Um, so I hadn't thought about it either. <laughs> Until, you know, it didn't, it didn't just sort of uh, come to me in a moment like, oh, that looks interesting. Um, when I was going through grad school, my father had a liver transplant. Um, and... It was, I, mean, I was already studying religion. I was doing Bible at that point. Possibly his later death is what shifted me into ethics. I think it's probably a lot of stuff going on there. But <laughs> um, I was surprised at how many questions it raised for me, right? Because there's my father, who I clearly want to keep living, and I want him to get through this procedure. But I was also faced in that moment with the significant loss of another family, right? That like when I showed up at the hospital and my mom was very happy, but what she said when she's got, she's smiling is, is something like, there was a wreck in Ohio, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like that's the, <laughs> so that, that coupling of, you know, one family's tragedy with another family's uh, physical redemption, uh, and continued existence, I think that was really hard for me. And I started thinking about that a lot more. And then when I did do the clinical pastoral education, um, CPE, hospital setting stuff, I ended up going and working in transplant to try to figure out what I really thought about it. And so I sort of say the existential questions and spiritual questions because I don't want to forefront any particular religion um, when I'm thinking about organ transplant, though I do think in in the United States, there's a lot of Christianity playing in the background. About, we have a um, lot of language for that. Right, yeah. about how um, Donate Life America or the Gift of Hope or whatever um, whatever is in your state that is the organ procurement organization. 
Um, I think they use a lot of religious language, generally Christian, mostly Protestant, <laughs> um, to motivate donation. And hmm. sometimes I think they're aware of it and it's intentional, and other times I think it's sort of this blend of um, religious language that then also sort of grafts onto altruism, and then somehow you end up as a good Samaritan. <laughs> And then, um, then you're talking about what it means to be a good person, right? And so, it's this sort of link of logics that gets you from being an organ donor to being a good person. And it's presented as, well, it just makes sense. You're not going to use those organs later. Why wouldn't you give them to somebody else? Um, and I, I think that we should just be careful and conscientious and and think about what we're saying. Yeah. Why, why wouldn't a person? What's the argument against? Why wouldn't someone be an organ donor? Yeah. Well, I can imagine um, not being an organ donor for certain kinds of theological reasons. Mm -hmm. um, I don't believe this, but there are people who believe in a bodily resurrection. Um, and I think even even people who do will sometimes get around that by saying, but if God can raise your body, then surely yeah. God can give you the organs you would need on the other side, right? So, right, can give them back. Um, That's been a long issue in the church. That was an mm -hmm. argument against cremation for a time. Mm -hmm. and Right. Like, what, how, they scatter the ashes? How, how are they going to come back together again? Yeah. Yeah, I think from inside the system of organ transplant, I find it hard, a hard practice to justify as um, simply a good thing, mm. right? Like, I think that's the rhetoric I really resist is that um, it's a no-brainer. You should do this. It makes you a good person. It's in line with your religion, whatever your religion is, <laughs> um, in part because it's an economy, right? And so, at the very bottom of the economy are is the free resource the free resource are the organs hmm. and then there's a two billion dollar economy in the united states built on top of that um and not everyone has access to transplant a lot of people are excluded um for social reasons which makes it makes it harder to get a transplant if you don't know how to navigate the medical system hmm. Basically, if you're not at least middle class. <laughs> and I have a problem with the idea of just demanding that people become a free resource for others that way. Mm. Um, That's a very interesting way fine, to frame that. Find opt-in. <laughs> yeah. If it's what you want to do. Yeah. Demanding that everyone become a free resource. That is a very American way to frame that, right? You exist, you are a resource, you belong to the government, you belong to this system of, of this economic system. <laughs> well, that's what would happen if we went to an, um, an opt-out system, hmm. right? There's been a lot of conversation about that, that. We should just assume everyone's an organ donor unless they put themselves on a list and opt out. Currently, we have an opt-in. You have to sign up to be on a list right. to be an organ donor. Um, but if we were to have just an opt-out system, there'd be a lot of problems, right? So, any number of people with religious objections, um, many of whom are not Christian, <laughs> would end up on a list. And um, mm. I don't really like it when the government starts making lists with citizens on it, <laughs> or maybe with anybody on it. Um, and, and then I, I wonder how one justifies that ethically in a country where the government doesn't really care about our health pre-pandemic i would have said this too <laughs> i have to say but the, yeah. but the government has not invested in in my health they've told me it's my responsibility so the idea that the government would lay claim to my remains at the time of death um I mean, they do that already legally, but that they would then want to use them in a particular way through medical processes. And, um, yeah, I, I'm not sure how we could really 
justify that, though we kind of live in a, a post-justification world right now. So, Post-justification world. <laughs> what do you mean I by mean, that? I, th- I mean, I think... I think I'm working on the assumption that the government is rational and coherent and interested in consistency, <laughs> and I don't know that that really holds right now. Um, Everything of the past couple of years has accelerated a lot of the trends that have been lurking for a while. So when I think in my head, I think that the government couldn't really make the argument <laughs> to do a, an opt-out system for organ donation. Um I, I have to sort of check myself and think, I don't know if the government's going to make the argument. They might just change the policy. So who owns your body when you're not using it anymore? Like when you're dead? Yeah. Like when you die, uh, who owns your remains? Yeah. Or who has power over them or deciding what happens to them? And No doubt there are listeners um, of this podcast who know the exact answer to this question. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine. <laughs> and I don't. So. <laughs> and I don't. Um, when people argue back at me about any number of things around organ transplant, I hear the state is in charge of dead bodies, right? So the dead bodies become an object of the state. I think one of the things that um, organ donation complicates is that you're not dead, hmm. right? So you are, well, you're kind of dead. You're almost dead. What's that quotation from The Princess Bride? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you're, you're only mostly dead. There it is. <laughs> you're only mostly dead. Um, so for organ donation to happen, it's almost always in a hospital, in an ICU unit, after the declaration of brain death. And less and less after the declaration of cardiac death. There's a real preference for brain death. But even after you've been declared dead... Um, your body is continually supported until the organs are harvested, but you're still legally dead. Um, And what's happening if you're an organ donor is that your um, wishes are being honored, right? So your autonomy over your body, which you set up (laughs) previously, um, is, is continuing. Mm. And it's that, that space where you're still alive in some technical ways, but legally dead, um, where I'm not sure if the government can can take control of your body. Hmm. Um, So usually when people say, well, the government um, or the state is in charge of dead bodies, I think they they really mean like people in morgues. Mm -hmm. People are absolutely dead. Yeah. Well, there's all these regulations about what you can do with human remains and what you can't do. Right. You know, as a pastor, I have to advise a lot of people that technically it's illegal to scatter the ashes. So I cannot advise you to do so, but make sure no one's looking if you do. You know. <laughs> did you did you think that'd be part of your job? <laughs> you're so wait, you're really not allowed to No. No. I oh. I there's a church nearby that has a an ash scattering field. That I, I guess, oh, wow. through some legal zoning or whatever, it's technically a part of their cemetery, and so it's uh, people are allowed to scatter ashes there. But no, in any other ways, it's illegal. Also, a lot of folks don't realize that that the remains they give you are not pure ash, and that there may be pieces of like bone and tooth and stuff in there. And some people like pour it out, thinking it's just going to fly away in a majestic sort of a way and it ends up being kind of traumatizing so just keep that in mind too listeners i've been interested in like most of my life about what happens to my carbon when i'm done with it and right right. what is the best way that i can give it back so there are um advertising campaigns about organ donation that use recycling symbols (laughs) recycle yourself like the three arrows? Yeah. <laughs> okay. That's one thing. Yeah. <laughs> That's one thing you could do. <laughs> that, well, I am an organ donor. I mean, I don't want to brag I mean, I, or anything, but... <laughs> <laughs> You're a good person. I'm a very good person. Um, I wonder um, what that would do to your carbon footprint, though, right? If your organs stay here, does, they, does that carbon footprint accrue to you? 
Oh, yeah. Is that on my bill in the great beyond? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. When I stand before the great seat of Al Gore and he judges me based on my carbon (laughs) footprint, what am I? There's um, there's a movement, you know, the the green burial movement that I know that um, uh, you've mentioned in the past. I'm really into this as an idea. I mean, ideally, I'd love to just, you know, someone dig a shallow hole under an old tree and just throw me in there. But that's not an option at all. But there's these this new movement to to be away from the, um, you know, the really carbon expensive process of cremation and the chemical laden process of embalming and burying. And there's a, this new third option. If you have some um, some expertise in this, um, I notice you've mentioned it before in the past. Uh, I have thoughts. You have thoughts. I have thoughts. Um, So when I was finishing my dissertation, I did it in a cabin in the woods on the property of the Sisters of Loretto in Kentucky. Um, I'm from Kentucky, so it doesn't, it's not as strange as it sounds. It wasn't like a a destination trip, Um, (laughs) but it was a nice sort of isolation place. And they're very environmentally focused as a, as a group of nuns and, supporters um and they had been trying to figure out how to keep um, a pipeline out of their land so there's a bunch of land in western kentucky that's owned by the catholic church um but different pieces of the catholic church not just one um and they were thinking about green burial this was not what I was writing about, but because I was writing about something else, I was more interested in this other thing. <laughs> um, and they they already had a lot of burial activism in their background. Um, they had been a place where um, HIV positive and um, Catholics with age uh, with AIDS could be buried even when the Catholic Church said they couldn't be buried on holy ground um, or in Catholic cemeteries. And so they had created some space for that already. And they had been disinterring some slaves that had been part of their setting, right? Part of their, Mm. um, part of the convent there for a while and reburying them in um, the cemetery where the sisters were buried and everyone else. I didn't get to talk to them as much about that, but I was I was interested in in that idea of, well, they were part of our community and um, we need to honor them now in this way if we can. Um, and they were, became interested in green burial. There were a bunch of sisters in like 85 and above trying to figure out how to bury themselves a little bit better. And they had decided to try to scatter themselves around their property. And that that would be a way to keep the pipeline out because then all of their property could be deemed burial grounds. And so they were sort of scouting out places where they could just be buried under trees. I think one of them had chosen a particular tree. And so there was a politically active imagination about the possible (laughs) behind this choice that was also environmental. And that's when I really got interested in it. What can we do with it? Like there's an impulse to have an effect beyond beyond death. And I think organ donation has a lot of that going for it too. The green burial is not just like dig a hole and throw them in. It's like there's layers of different types of, well, like depending on where it is. I know in Oregon, they've got these like almost like ossuaries like they would have in the ancient world where they would have these pods where the body can kind of decompose and then they move that to another place when it's just bones. Um, Just like in the ancient world, um, things come back around. But uh, out here anyway, there's this uh, Catholic cemetery that does, um, they dig a hole and then they, put the body in with like this cardboard coffin and then there's different layers of of compost and mulch and different things designed to have a really hot decomposition process so that within a couple of weeks 
all of the remains are now back into the soil and um, without really a whole lot of waste involved. Mm-hmm. I really like that as an idea. Yeah, I think the the sisters were, their biggest concern was ritual, that their families would want to have some sort of liturgy or ritual around death. And would that be possible um, for them to have that kind of closure? And the the other project that I got interested in while I was out there was the human composting project that I think is taking off in Seattle. Yeah. Um, Which we just finished. We just launched an episode on disgust. And I think there's probably a lot of our listeners out there will hear the phrase human composting and get this visceral response, right? I see Ian not not doing well with that. We got to dig into that one. (laughs) Um, Real real quick, uh, and I may have missed it. I sometimes go into La La Land. It's a wonderful place. But with the sisters, whatever happened with the pipeline and all that kind of stuff? They were able to get a stay on the pipeline without being declared um, a burial ground completely. But they were hoping to get a lot of the other um, Catholic properties to also yoke themselves together. And then the land... Burial ground. They wanted it to be a bird sanctuary hmm. uh, from migratory birds. <laughs> um, but there has been a stay, and I think that the oil company has decided um, to abandon that particular pipeline. Okay. I think they put up enough protest of multiple kinds <laughs> to keep them out for now. And <laughs> <laughs> I love nuns. I know. The feistiest of Christians. Yeah. Hmm. So we talked a little bit about your commitment and interest in um, in greening the world and finding greener alternatives to things. Um, you did your work with Intersection of Environmental Ethics and the Hebrew Bible. And that's not some a connection I've heard made too many times. Um, can you elaborate a little bit on where the connecting points were for you? I think so. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think so. Um, so, I, I gave you a little bit of the story. I just didn't present it as the story. So, I went to grad school to study Hebrew Bible because um, I just love it. I mean, I just I love the text. I love the language. It's wonderful. I had a background in archaeology before that in Israel. Um, it was great. And while um, that was happening, while I was doing those studies, um, my father had. Um, a liver problem and ended up needing a liver transplant. Um, And I found that I just had a lot of questions I couldn't answer, and I wanted my studies to be able to help me answer some questions. And so over time, I migrated away from Hebrew Bible as its own sort of discipline and um, into ethics, where I felt like I had some support to pursue those questions. But that came with a lot of grief of its own. (laughs) And... I wanted to drag all of this biblical knowledge in with me. And I, so the intersection I found where that could be helpful um, was around conversations in Genesis, about Genesis um, and creation and environmental ethics. So that's sort of how I ended up in environmental ethics, not necessarily from some unique passion um, to make the, the environmental movement better, Um, But for a way to try to understand how the Hebrew Bible could be a positive source for environmental action in the world, uh, I don't know that I answered that question ultimately, Um, Hmm. but I got to spend more time thinking about how the Bible functions ethically in American culture. (laughs) You'd think there'd be room for that right now, but seemingly there's not. (laughs) Well, when you say the Bible in American culture, you, you either have to mean a very specific interpretation of the Bible or not at all. I think one of my favorite uh, little tidbits from the law is when um, I think it's uh, framed as Moses saying it, that um, when you're sieging a city, feel free to kill all the people, right? Go ahead, have your have your murder, but don't you dare touch any of the fruit trees, that are on the property because they're not at war with you. And if you damage 
the environment of the city around that which you're sieging, then I'm I'm coming for you because that's mine. And like, I mean, that's the Zach Jackson in um, <laughs> my yeah. translation, not a not any official translation, but um, you know that and the the Sabbath rest for the land. Um, you know, it's it seems like God really likes the world and is not a huge fan of people who ruin it. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's true. Um, I think Leviticus just has a wealth of uh, environmentally positive information, images, theologies on offer. I wish Christians read it more. <laughs> it's not even a lectionary, so... <laughs> I actually have never heard of anyone describing Leviticus that way. Hmm. Oh, maybe I, maybe I should positive and my dissertation. <laughs> well, because I remember when I started my Bible study several years ago, that I mean, everyone I talked to, and I got into Leviticus probably before the uh, fellowship started, but everyone I was talking to was just like, "Oh man, wait till you get to Leviticus and." You're going to be bored out of your mind. It's horrible. And just that's, so that was, I just, that's just what I kept hearing from anyone who had read it before. That was pretty much the mindset of and what, what I was it, given. What did you think? I thought it was pretty boring. <laughs> like I just, it, but if you think about it, someone, you know, and I I'm still have not finished reading the whole Bible yet, but someone who does not have a background in theology or you know, religious studies at all decides to embark on this for the first time ever and that's what you're hearing so of course that's going to be the um the mindset you take into it right and right. so yeah i remember struggling through that thing and i think what would be interesting you know i blogged through it like i reflected oh, on awesome. every reading and i still have probably a quarter to a third to go it'll still be there when you're ready <laughs> <laughs> yes it will the website's still up all reflections are pure online if you want to do but, a conversation in your blog on leviticus let me know you can go back and I've, forth <laughs> i think i may actually because you know with the the book i am working on about you know bridging the divide between science and religion that's one way to do that mm -hmm. i think um the first time i read leviticus as an entire book as opposed to just being preached at from it you know the the clobber passages about basically uh I think what the ministers want to say is don't be gay, but they sort of like hit around that a little bit differently. Um, but the first time I read it in its entirety, I read it in Hebrew. And I just, I, I think at some sort of fundamental level, the Hebrew Bible is a different text in Hebrew than it is in English. Rachel um, said that. Yeah, it just, it feels different. It feels literary. If you love ancient languages, it's then exciting to be able to read it. <laughs> um, True story. Yeah, but as a as a woman who has a wife, I also I have moments where I wonder, like, what kind of reclamation of this text am I really trying to do? And I'm not really sure that I can answer that on a deep level. What kind of like reaction formation is happening here? <laughs> that I've decided yeah. this is the text that that I like the most. Um, but I also like structure and order and figuring out how systems work. And um, Leviticus will give you a lot of that. So it made me wonder, because both of you can speak ancient language, right? An ancient language, at least. <laughs> Zach, you're ancient Greek, mm -hmm. right? And then, Crystal, you're saying ancient Hebrew. Mm -hmm. right? So you were reading it in the original Hebrew, mm -hmm. or I guess. Is that right? The original Hebrew? Um, what the academics have decided is the original Hebrew text for now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay. So I guess what I'm curious, and maybe, and you both could probably answer this, is... When reading the Bible in its original text and then reading it and again in English, how often do you find yourselves when you're reading in English saying, "What? Wait, that's not that's not what it said, or that's not how I read." It. You know what I mean? Like, there's the whole "lost in translation" phrase. So I'm just curious. Like, what are your either of you your thoughts on that? This is your episode, Crystal. Okay. So. <laughs> yes, you can go first. I can ask that question of Zach any day. Because I can ramble about um, I can just call him and ask. The Greek scriptures all day. Yeah, so I think when I'm reading it in Hebrew, 
And what would come to mind in English is probably something that I'd had to memorize as a child. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, then it can create a lot of cognitive dissonance because I could I would be like, well, that's not actually what it says. But I think what's more important is that it just doesn't say one thing, right? Okay. So in Hebrew, um, if you're not, well, maybe even if you are a native Hebrew speaker, um, there's a sort of reading an ancient text in its original, there's a sudden sort of defamiliarization with it. And you're sort of confronted by what you don't know and new possibilities arise in the translation. Mm -hmm. um, like not only is Hebrew a language that has some, some gaps in narrative and polyvalence in language, um, but you just start to see possible translations that you wouldn't if you're coming from a culture where you just know what it says in English. Right. <laughs> like the, the English is sort of flattening. It doesn't have to be, but I came from a, a religious culture where it was. Okay. Yeah, and some of this I think is pastor's faults. We take, we take these easy routes when we look through a concordance and we find a definition that fits the sermon we want to preach better than it fits the context that it's in. And we'll say in our sermons, like, your English Bible says this, but the Greek here has this nuance. And then we pretend we make up some nuance, um, you know, about the four different types of loves and what, uh, right, Peter and Jesus, when really, you know, nobody ever talks about how Jesus uses multiple different words for sheep in there. And it's just an example of how language is squishy and John's not a good writer. But... Um, We've done that for so long that we've made it seem like there's this huge gap between the original text and the English text, when in reality, some of the smartest people in the world have gotten together in large groups to figure out what would be the best rendering of this. And for the most part, it's pretty trustworthy. There's a couple of places where it like it glosses over things. Um, or there's like a beloved translation that nobody wants to change, like, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death is not a good rendering of that. It should be like, though I walk through a really dark valley. Um, but you better believe in the hospital. That's what people want. Oh, and when I read it from the NRSV and it still says a, the darkest valley, I'll say the valley of the shadow of death hmm. because I know that's what they want to hear. Or for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The so in there is uh, hutos, I think, which is more translated as thusly, not so much. It's referring to Moses in the wilderness from the verse before, holding up a snake, uh, holding up the, the bronze snake. They have an, anyone who looks at it will be cured from poison. Um, so for God loved the world, just like did back then in the wilderness, he gave up his only begotten son, like just connecting verse 15 and 16, but it's become such a verse on its own that God loved the world so much. He loves you so much and you're his best friend that he died. Um, yeah, but it's just a dake dick, right? You're saying it's a dake dick that points back to something else outside of itself. Yeah. That's really awesome. Yeah. I think the thing that happens with me with Hebrew, and it may have more to do with how I was taught to read Hebrew Bible, is that you know, you're reading along and you come across a word or a phrasing and you think, I've seen that before. Where did I see that? And lo and behold, it's in another book in the Hebrew Bible or in another piece right. um, in the same text. And then you start sort of thinking about how those pieces inform each other. Um, and I well, think that in made English, that doesn't happen to me. Right. That you saying that made me think about, I can't remember his name, but I'm sure you guys both know. Um, but I learned about this particular individual on um, the Bible Tells Me So podcast about, oh, what was it? Um, a gentleman who took almost three decades to translate the Bible with, yeah, what made me think about it, Crystal was you saying that when you're, when you were reading, a particular book in the Bible and you ran across a Hebrew word and you started thinking, wait a minute, where have I seen that before? And you realize you saw it in a, a different book of the Hebrew Bible mm -hmm. that he was talking about. That was a strategy that was used to try to get it the best mm -hmm. translation possible. So that is one of the, the, the methods too. And, but it's not the only okay. one. That's something that pastors are very guilty of too. So like if in English you were reading from Huck Finn and 
it said that he 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 steered his his raft to the bank onto the bank of the river and you were preaching a sermon on that and you said well the english here says bank and in this context it seems to mean the side of a river but bank in english can also mean a place where money is stored so there's this air of of security a place where you can be safe there's also oh, okay. bank can also mean a bounce like in basketball and so there's also a feeling of insecurity and so it's this dualism happening here between security and insecurity that is also reflected within the heart of huck finn himself in this part of the story like you see how you can no English speaker would ever accept that. We'd be like, no, it's just a word and it means a thing. Like that's, it doesn't mean all the yeah. things. It means the one thing that it means in that context. But we'll say, um, you know, word like penuma or uh, psuche, that means spirit and soul and life and breath and wind and air. And then we'll make one word that somehow means all of those things. And whichever thing makes the most sense for my sermon today, that's what the the subtlety of meaning is, and that's not true. Um, but you have to say that that Huck Finn uh, interpretation was really good. It was creative. It may not be yes, true, it was. Well, I mean, right? It was and won me over. there's the there's that wonderful way of interpreting Torah that I'm learning from all my Jewish <laughs> friends now, where it's like yeah. that can be true too. But I can't yeah. say, and me growing up Baptist, and I can't say that that's the interpretation of it. That no. that's what the author intended, and that's what God meant, and that's what the the language actually says. But you can. And I'm I'm lucky that I don't have to say that. Nobody asked me to say that. Oh well. <laughs> Anymore. As, as Anymore. a chaplain and as a. I had a I had a church for a little while, but yeah. Disciple of Christ. Did I read that? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So what made you leave then a church to? I mean, did, was it that you had you were in a church setting prior to what you're doing now, or, or um, was so there a transition in there? While I was um, teaching at Eureka College um, in Illinois, I took on a church as well. Okay. Um, partially, I wanted the experience of being a pastor in a church, um, yeah. having come to the practical aspects of of theology and ethics a little bit later. I didn't do that along the way. So I had gone from um, academic to chaplain back to academic and was feeling more more pulled to do something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and uh, there's this church I really enjoyed. Um, this is our equivalent but, of doing field work. Right. right. <laughs> but as... Um, as someone who I needed some stability, right? I think mm-hmm. that churches are not the most uh, stable places for pastors right now. I think it's kind of hard to navigate. Um, so, so here we are at the end of our conversation, and I want to ask you the same question that I am asking all of the Sinai and Synapses fellows, and that is, what is one thing? that you wish everyone knew about the world. About the world? About the world. Whew. I thought you were going to say about what you do. Teach us, teach us, Christine. I mean, that could be the thing I answer anyway. Um, <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> what about the world? Hmm. I'm going to go with what I do. Okay, so I would say that in a hospital setting, there is narrative chaos. And a lot of times people don't really know which narratives um, they want. Do they want the narrative where their disease is caused by some sort of microscopic thing, where the smallest things in the world are creating the biggest outcomes and the biggest problems, the things you can't see except in a microscope? Or do they want the narratives about um, how the things that are caused are only caused by things that are bigger than themselves, where you have something like a divine mover and that that theory of causation. Um, And that chaplain's main roles rather than being simply the people who help you go to the morgue and are at the end of life. (laughs) But the chaplain's main role 
is to walk into those conflicting narratives and try to help patients and families situate themselves between them. Less often choosing one or the other, more often trying to see the overlap and where their values are. Wow. That is a beautiful way to rephrase uh, much of what ministry is. Thank you for that. So it happens outside the hospital too, you're telling me? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I do a lot of creative reframing in my work as well. Yeah. Um, So bless you for willingly stepping into the willingly stepping into trauma every day and Mm. choosing Mm -hmm. to place yourself in the worst situations that some people will ever face and offering offering that gift that you have of being able to give them a coherent narrative you are one of the helpers that uh mr rogers talked about looking for in these in these troubling times and i'm really grateful on behalf of all of chicago (laughs) my second favorite city fantastic second favorite Um, we're used to being second oh well i'm second city yeah i'm from the philadelphia area but loved my time in chicago i would i'm back on the one thing i want people to know about the world yeah you, yeah. can, you can edit this out if you want, but um, it or would, it could just be two. It could be two. Um, we still don't have enough PPE. That's the question I get the most from people outside the hospital. It's like, well, yeah, but you've got enough PPE right now. Like the assumption, no, we don't. Wow, we've adapted, but we do not have enough PPE. The country's kind of stopped talking about it, mm-hmm. um, but we don't. Mm. So you want the powers that be to know that, to be able to... I think I think they know. <laughs> I think they probably do know. <laughs> this goes back to you talking about competence in government, right? Uh, right. I think, um, I, I think it's important that people know, right? Like hospitals and other essential um, institutions have continued to function, but it's not that our needs were ever met. It's that we had found some creative solutions and we adapted to doing more with less. <laughs> um, but that's, we did not solve that problem. It'll probably interesting. Continue. We just stopped talking about it. So I just want to say a huge thank you um, to our guest. Thank you so much for spending the time being here with us, Crystal, and for sharing some of your wisdom and your very unique story and helping us to um, maybe creatively retell the story that we all find ourselves in. So thank you for all that you do and all that you're doing through the fellowship and uh, for joining us here. It was a joy. 